Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. And on today's show, we're here for the love of transmission arts, which is when artists use the radio as their medium, not just uh, broadcasting sound, but the whole idea of what a radio, of how radio exists in our world becomes, well, instead of me trying to define transmission art on today's show, let's just jump right into the interview with Amanda Dawn Christie, uh, produced today by Jennifer Waits. Today we're speaking with Amanda Dawn Christie, Assistant Professor Studio Arts at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada, and a transmission artist. And Amanda, you were recently in Alaska doing a transmission art piece called Ghosts in the Airglow. And I wanted to learn more about what initially attracted you to transmission arts and, and radio generally. Okay, well, um, it all started in kind of a weird uh, uh, spot. So my background uh, is interdisciplinary. I work with uh, film, contemporary dance, experimental sound. And back in, I guess it would be 2009, I built my first radio receiver. It was just like a foxhole radio with some wire wrapped around a toilet paper tube that I built in a workshop. in a town called Sackville, New Brunswick. It's a small town of uh, about 3,000 people. And my radio picked up Italian radio. No and way. I thought, <laughs> yeah, so I thought I did a great job. I was like, wow, I did fantastic. And it turned out I did not do a great job. I just happened to be next to uh, a very large international shortwave radio station, the Radio Canada International Shortwave Towers which broadcast all around the world to um, Europe, Africa, Australia, the Arctic, South America. And so I was really close to them. And then I found out that some people in the area uh, heard if they had copper pipes in their house, the pipe would act as an antenna and they would hear the radio in their sink. Wow. And yeah, so I was jealous because I didn't have a radio sink and you can't just go buy a Sony Sinkman. So I decided to try and make my own radio sync and I, um, every paycheck, you know, I didn't have any special funding. Like some people smoke, some people have cable TV. My disposable income went to copper plumbing pipe. Every paycheck I'd go and buy another 12 feet of pipe and I just transferred the schematic of a foxhole radio into uh, plumbing and it was called the marshland radio plumbing project and i would take my sink out on the marsh and try to hear the radio that is hilarious (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it all kind of snowballed from there yeah so that was the beginning did it work no (laughs) (laughs) but um i was told that it would work um i was about 40 meters short of pipe which is very expensive But what wound up happening was, so it became a photo project and a performance in failure um, and a site-specific sculpture. I've exhibited the sink as a sculpture in art galleries um, with soundtracks playing inside the pipes coming out of the sink. Mm-hmm. And so what would How happen is- How big is, is the were, sink? Uh, well, it can always, it, it's modular, so it could be configured in different ways. Every time I set it up, I'd do something different. It can it could be up to about uh, 24 feet long. Oh, wow, um, yeah. Yeah, so it, uh, when I uh, what what happened would be I I took it to like the, an agricultural fair in Sackville and met some farmers and locals in the community, and it was a re- and there was an article in the newspaper local artist tries to hear radio in kitchen sink, so it's a small enough town that when I would 
um, go to get groceries or go to the cafe. Strangers would stop me and say, so have you heard the radio in your sink yet? And I'd be like, oh, uh, no. And they'd say, let me tell you, we used to hear it in our fridge or we would hear it on the radiator. And people just started sharing stories with me. And so then I started carrying a sound recorder and gathering these stories. And so the sync became a point of departure where it was a conversation piece that sparked other people to tell stories. And so then I realized that the radio towers in the landscape there were just so beautiful that I wanted to film them. So I wanted to do this landscape film spread over the course of a year, spring, summer, fall, winter, all different weather conditions, seasons. And I was going to pair them with these stories. And then I got to meet the uh, technicians who worked at the radio site. I, I went for a tour and then I discovered that after 9 p.m. there was only one person on duty and they're usually bored. So sometimes I would go after 9, just show up. And if, there was, if things were going smoothly, they'd make a pot of coffee. We'd go to the kitchen, get out a topographical map and look at... And they saw my schematic and they're like, yeah, this sink should definitely work. You just need more pipe. They gave me their broadcast schedules. We looked at the azimuths to figure out where in the marsh, at what time of day I should be to catch which broadcasts. We had to make sure that they were analog broadcasts and not digital radio, because my sink wasn't a digital sink. It was a <laughs> an- <laughs> analog kitchen sink. Yeah, it was an analog radio sink. It wasn't one of the new fancy digital radio sinks. It was a, yeah. So, so yeah. So I started building up relationships with the community as a through um, the project with my sink and getting stories and then started visiting the site and started learning a lot more about radio and shortwave radios and uh, yeah so that's where it all began and and i know on another project you you did something with a clothesline because you'd heard stories about people hearing the radio on a clothesline i was intrigued by that too could you explain what was going on there yeah, so that also that was one of the stories that someone in Sackville had shared was that there was uh, there were two farms that were very close when they first built the towers and there was one family when they would send the clothesline when it was rolling uh, when the you know the line was rolling on the wheel you would hear the radio and when it stopped you wouldn't <gasps> and yeah yeah <laughs> and they were they they eventually CBC bought these two farms and um, cleared the land because it, these people were living dangerously close like light bulbs would sometimes turn on. Like when they started broadcasting towards Africa, the lights would just start to glow. They wouldn't come on all the way, just to a little glow. And then they would go out. Yeah, and I think that there was this, uh, so I was interested in this kind of um, idea of people being unintentional witnesses. You're hearing radio broadcasts in other languages not meant for you. Like the people who heard it in their fridge could control the volume by opening and closing the door. And it was only certain times of the day, like only when they broadcast a certain direction. So it wasn't constant. Mm. And the way they, they would describe it, it's like, you can't really make out what they're saying. Like it's clearly voices, but you can't make out what they're saying. So it's like there's someone in your basement. So you come home from school and it's like you hear someone talking in the basement. You know it's just the radio in the pipes, but you still have to go and check and make sure you're alone. Yeah. So it's this kind of creepy feeling ghost story and again the the reality is that there was a shortwave radio station broadcasting internationally very powerful um what what was the station again like what was the content it was it's uh it was radio canada international and so it was canada's only high power shortwave relay site and so they broadcast um canadian radio 
But it was so powerful and it was, it was situated because radio ricochets between the ocean and the ionosphere, kind of circles the world like a ping pong ball, uh, not ping pong, a pinball, like a pinball machine, you know, like it, the radio waves bounce back and forth between the surface of the planet and the ionosphere. And it goes better over water. So Sackville was located, it's by the ocean. So it's the perfect place for reaching Europe and North Africa. So um, that site, which was built in the late 30s and became active in the early 40s, uh, was activated during World War II. And it was very strategic during the Cold War. Like they actually broadcast Radio Free Europe. Um, they were the first allied site to break the jamming signals during the Cold War uh, to cross the Iron Curtain. Um, by the time I was making my film, they were contracted out, so they, it belonged to Radio Canada International, they broadcast Radio Canada International, but they were also subcontracted by, um, to, to relay transmissions for Voice of Vietnam, Radio China, Radio Japan, um, is it Japan, China, Korea, Vietnam. Wow. Vatican, Vatican Radio. So basically, all sorts of other countries were using this site. Oh, interesting. And this is because shortwave radio, for our listeners, is um, much more of a powerful medium than, than the FM or even AM that we might be used to. You can really hear it uh, with a strong signal, that, uh, you know, a strong signal supported by a government. You can hear it around the world and on a yep. shortwave radio, if you have shortwave, which was much more common, maybe especially when they built the thing in in the first half of the 20th century. Well, yeah, and it's still, unfortunately, they're starting to tear the sites down now, which is a shame, um, because there's still, the thing with shortwave is that um, it's in real time, like anything that's live on the internet always has like a 45 second delay. It's mandated by governments so mm. that if something bad happens, they can stop it. Whereas shortwave is real time because radio travels at the speed of light. And it's also really accessible. You don't, you can't really block it. You can kind of jam it with the right equipment, but really, um, so what happens is you have the internet like in countries like China or other authoritarian regimes where they censor the internet, but shortwave gets through from other countries. So when you listen to sh international shortwave radio, you can hear the news from different perspectives of different countries. And there's a charity in the United States called, I think it's called Ears to Our World, and they send shortwave radios to third world countries under authoritarian regimes so that people can access um, uh, international yeah. news and information. And, and it's not like a computer, right? Like it's much more accessible. You can get a cheap $20 radio. Right. And it's also, um, you, can't, you can't be tracked. You know, when you turn on a radio, that is a private act. And there's no, there's no, uh, there's no trail to be followed by, by an authoritarian government spying on you. A radio is private. Exactly. And, and you can access it in the, in the jungle, in the desert, in remote areas. So yeah. think of all the places where you don't get cell phone service or you don't have an internet connection. Well, you can still pick up radio. And yet we have all these governments tearing down these radio sites under the assumption that everyone has the internet. But we know that that's, that's a really privileged point of view. It's not true. Not everyone has access to the internet. And so when we dismantle these international shortwave sites, we are in effect uh, depriving access to you know, international uh, sources of information. So when did Radio Canada cease? They announced they were decommissioning the site in July 2012. And the last transmission, the last Canadian transmission overseas was July of 2012. And the last transmission up to the Arctic was in November of 2012. So it must be so sad for you since this 
this really sparked your interest in radio, you know, hearing broadcasts from Radio Canada International and, and to have it disappear. What was that like for you? Well, for me, it was also more than just because that site, the significance was more than just listening because I grew up in that area. I mean, the it was 30, I was 30 before I realized what they were doing. It was part a landmark because it's a flat marshland landscape and these towers are like 40 story tall buildings. The towers are, was it 113 meters? So that's like a, over 400 feet tall. So you've got 13, 400 foot tall towers on this below sea level saltwater marsh. And at night they have these red lights and they light up. So it's this really iconic landmark. And growing up, I just thought, oh, every town has one of these. I didn't realize how unique it was or what it did. And many locals in Sackville as well, for them, it was a landmark that when you're driving home from a long trip, you can see them in the distance and you know you're almost home. So there was a real sense of of home and landmark in the towers. So they were, for me, they were probably as important or if not more important as a landmark, which is interesting because not being an international listener, many Canadians didn't even know that this service existed. Like it was really for international audiences. Mm. So... For me, what happened was I was then I'd gotten funding to do this film that I had this idea of when I was doing the sink and I was filming it in uh, different weather conditions, different seasons. That was when the laundry line came up. As I was filming at one point, there was a big sinkhole in the ground behind it. And one day, uh, every time I went, like I almost drove my car into this hole and then someone else like put a, a stick in it. So you'd, like every time you go, different people put things so you'd be aware of this hole because it was just a public access road for farmers. And uh, I, I see this hole and, and, and someone had put two mounds of dirt on either side and two posts. And I saw the posts and I thought, that just needs a clothesline. So it started off as kind of a goofy idea. I went to a hardware store, bought a clothesline and some clothes and hung it up over the hole in, my, in, a, in a futile attempt to domesticate this abyss. And uh, it was only later that I realized, oh, yeah, the parallel with the lady who heard the lo- uh, radio on her clothesline. Yeah. But so that's how so basically that clothesline project was just started off as something to amuse myself when I was out there alone. Uh, wow. And and no, and I just took photos with my iPhone and eventually no one ever took it down. It was up for a whole wow. year. And so then eventually as the clothes were getting tattered, I thought, OK, this is this is a thing I should use a better camera. So then I did more um, uh, proper documentation. And after I started doing the film, that was when they announced they were tearing the site down. So I started the film without knowing it was going to be torn down. And so basically the final chapter of my film, I wound up documenting the demolition. I was the only person on site when it was demolished. And so my film kind of goes spring, summer, fall, winter. And in the winter, you don't hear any speaking. You just watch it be, you have uh, about 25 minutes to just witness the demolition of the site. Amanda Don Christie, assistant professor of studio arts at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. What's the title of your experimental documentary about this? Uh, a shortwave radio tower for can- uh, for Radio Canada International? It's called Spectres of Shortwave, Ombre des Ondes Cotes. And uh, I have to ask, before we move on, did you ever have uh, a radio uh, uh, you know, engineer, a scientist, explain to you why the clothesline picked up the shortwave radio when it was spinning, but not when it was uh, oh. not in motion? <laughs> That's fascinating. Well, I did... I- I did a fair bit of research on my own. Um, I, uh, it's called uh, external rectification or the rusty bolt effect. 
Um, and this is more applying to how things like sinks and fridges play the radio. It's when you have two different types of metal touching each other mm. um, with a, se a semiconductor in between, that is essentially a diode, right? And so that's the one missing part in a foxhole. That's the only electric electronic component in a foxhole radio is a diode. And so you just need two different conductive materials with a semiconductor in between. So in the case of a sink, you have two pipes and a poorly soldered joint. In the case of the, the rotating clothesline, it's that it's as it spins, you get the little bits of air between the the wire and the wheel mm -hmm. that, ah. that happen. Yeah. Amazing. And that's why you could hear the shortwave radio on a clothesline or on a sink. Or in the fridge, or yeah. In the fridge. So you had you've had some installation pieces connected with various projects and and didn't you have one where you actually utilize parts of the towers that were torn down? Yeah, so during the demolition, um, I scavenged pieces of the site. Um, I wasn't allowed to tell anyone I was filming at the time or post anything on social media because there was so much scrap metal and they were afraid people would steal stuff. Yeah. But I did ask, there were some pieces on the ground and I said, what are those for? And they said, those are for repairs. And I was like, well, you're not repairing anything now, are you? <laughs> and they were like, no, do you want some? I was like, yeah. So I got three pieces of the towers, that, or no, six, I got six pieces that are about two to 300 pounds each, 10 feet long. <laughs> and they're, yeah, there's, and the thing is, those aren't actual pieces of the towers themselves. Those are, they're like cell phone towers that they use, they're called spreaders. So these radio towers are so big, the antennas are the copper wires between them. And they use pieces of cell phone towers suspended horizontally between the wires to space them out. Oh, so these were, wow. but they look like, but I mean, they're the size of cell phone towers. So. I had six of these pieces and I hang them from the ceiling of it. So it requires, I've only exhibited it twice because it requires a big gallery space um, with a 20 foot ceiling that can support the weight um, because I suspend them from aircraft ceiling cable from the ceiling. Uh, the piece is called uh, specters of shortwave uh, radio towers like wind chimes. So I hang the pieces of radio towers like wind chimes. So they look delicate and yet it's very heavy and ominous and industrial. And in one manifestation of the installation, I had a rear projection video suspended in the middle. And in another one, I had six, a six channel sound. Um, so six speakers floating around playing contact microphone recordings of the towers. Mm, so not so not broadcast, not radio broadcast, but just what the towers themselves uh, sound like in the in the air, in the sky, connected between the earth and the sky. Yeah, exactly. Because they're, you know, they're 400 feet tall and the marshes metal. that, yeah, they're made of metal and the, the, that marsh, because it's like between two large bodies of water, uh, the winds get extremely high. So they're like giant guitar strings in the wind. So you couldn't hear the sounds with your, with the naked ear, but using contact microphones, it's like a doctor listening with a stethoscope to a heartbeat. Um, each tower had its own sound. To me, they became like voices. I felt like I was hearing the voices of the towers. So it was really, um, I really felt like I was listening to the heart, their heartbeat, to listening to the inside. And so what happened was uh, I, sh I filmed, between the time I finished filming and waiting for the demolition, it was a two year waiting period where I could have finished the film, but I thought, no, that would be terrible to finish it and then have it demolished like a month later. So I kept waiting. And in that waiting period, I was done. I, sh I was shooting everything on 35 millimeter film, which is expensive. So, and beautiful. Um, 
Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, I shot mostly. Yeah, I've I've got my own thirty-five millimeter Airy BL four. It's uh yeah, her name's Pirate Bonnie Lou the Fourth. I love my camera. Oh nice. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, tangent there, but um, yeah. So the I had this two year window, and so what I did with that was I did sound recording, and I would actually camp next to the site. And I had homemade contact microphones and I would record um, all the towers. And so I built up this library of, of contact microphone recordings of these drones. And there's 13 towers. Right. And, and when then, you say drones, you mean the, 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 the droning of audio, not a, not a flying machine. Yes, exactly. Just Sorry. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so, for 2019's sake. That's right. I keep forgetting. Yeah. So it's like these vibrating towers and they're very haunting and you get some mechanical sounds like where wires will bang. Um, and so I used, and I actually got my climbing certification. I climbed two of the towers to record at the top. Oh my. The top sounds, yeah, the top sounds the same as the bottom. So I only did two of them. But um, the, so I used the soundtrack of the film throughout it. The background sound is all those contact microphone recordings. But at the, in the demolition scene of the film, what I did was, there's 13 towers and there's 13 notes in a chromatic scale if you go from tonic to tonic. So like C, C sharp, D, D sharp, E, F. So I took each tower's recording and then used a hum remover backwards to zero in on a fundamental frequency and all the subharmonics and ultraharmonics so that they became like musical notes. And during the demolition scene, every time a tower falls, I remove its voice from the soundtrack. So it starts... Yeah, so it starts off, it's 25 minutes for the demolition stream scene, and it starts off like this very um, um, dynamic, haunting choir. And every time a radio tower falls, uh, first its voice is amplified like a dying breath and then removed. So by the end, you're down to just one last voice or haunting sound from a tower. And so that's how that was made. And um, and then that led to the next, like then I just started working with those recordings as um, musical elements. That's amazing. I, I love that your work is so multifaceted where you have these audio works and then the, you know, installations and galleries. It's just, it's sort of a radio, radio nerd <laughs> artist dream. Yeah, I'm definitely a radio nerd. <laughs> So from, from there, Amanda Don Christie, you also did another project, Requiem for Radio, and, and there, it seems like there are a lot of common themes. You've been talking about ghosts and specters and, and death. So what was Requiem for Radio? Yeah. Well, it's funny just about the, the specters and ghosts. And at first, I really wanted to avoid any reference to the paranormal. And someone said about the title of the film Specters of Shortwave, they're like, oh, you're dealing with the paranormal. And I was like, no, I was I was referencing specters, Derrida's specters of Marx. <laughs> and they're like, but you know that people think that the souls of the dead live in the AM bandwidth of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? And I was like, what? No, I had not and heard that like, one. Really? Yeah, so it turned, well, it's basically uh, in the late 1800s, the spiritualists, when radio was being discovered, mm, yeah, the, spiritu the spiritualists believed that the souls of the dead lived in, the, um, in radio waves. And so that's where you have all these mediums and seances, and hence the, the trope in horror movies today, when, you know, there's like a, a ghost or something, and the television static goes all wonky, or the radio goes wonky. That all harkens back to the spiritualists of the 1800s. 
And the idea that, you know, you have matter and energy can't be created or destroyed. So when matter, when someone dies, the energy that's the spirit, energy is in the electromagnetic spectrum. So I was like, initially, I was very much opposed to my work being read that way. I was okay. like, no way. I do not want to go there. But it seems a bit inevitable, so now I try to kind of play with it. Yeah, there's, and, there's uh, a lot of... I try to own it. There's a lot of folklore, existing folklore around all sorts of... You know, basically every electronic technology uh, as, it, as it was introduced seemed to inspire the, the notion that it was connected somehow to the afterlife and to the dead. And you can find uh, ghost stories or songs about using the radio to talk to your dead relatives or, or calling them on the phone. Um, I'm sure now at this very instant, there's some kind of creepy pasta, which is the internet version of of these folklores that that connects the internet to the dead. So it it, yeah. it keeps coming back. So radio, yeah, radio, sure. and the voices of the dead would be would be an obvious um, trope <coughs> if you if you're yeah. if you're going to tell a story, if you're going to tell a ghost story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then, yeah. So when you mention the dead, that's where the requiem comes from. So requiem for radio was again still about the Radio Canada, the RCI towers. Um, so Spectres of Shortwave was meant to be a documentary when they were still standing, but it happened to document them coming down. But then I had this, throughout the making of Spectres of Shortwave, each tower, I don't know if it was just that I went a little um, loopy from working so long and hard alone, um, but I eventually anthropomorphized the towers. Each one really seemed to have its own personality. Like I, I tried to do these photographs in, normally people do landscape photos of the entire array on the landscape. I did some portraits of each of them to try and honor each individual tower. And then I had their contact microphone recordings. And then I had this image in my head of, you know, how sometimes when someone dies and their numbers in your phone book and you forget, you'd go to call them yeah. and then you, and it's really painful. So I had this, image of these radio transmission sites around the world calling out to the Radio Canada site after it was gone. Oh. And yeah, so I, um, so Requiem for Radio had multiple parts and one part was this composition, uh, a five channel composition where I bought airtime on five stations around the world and I recorded a choir singing a, the Kyrie from a Requiem, five voices, a soprano, an alto, two tenors and a bass. And I commissioned a composer uh, that I collaborate with a lot, my friend Lucas Pierce, to compose a work with that recording and to take the, the Latin Requiem, uh, Mass for the Dead, William Byrd's Mass for Five Voices, and converted the Latin to Morse code, used my contact... <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah, because, uh, you know, Morse code is used a lot in shortwave radio. Yeah. And then my contact microphone recordings of the towers, um, the pitch shifted ones, became the melody of the Requiem. So the melodies played out in the contact microphones, the text, the Latin text is in Morse code, and then the choir, each voice is on a separate channel. And then the, um, and then we integrated number stations as well. Oh, those, my favorite. Yeah, yeah, the spy channels. Jennifer, tell, tell the listeners what number stations are. Uh, well, I think Amanda just did spy, you know, that, that spies have, have read no, uh, numbers over shortwave radio and then it's secret code that gets decoded by, by someone else. But you might run across a station where there's just somebody reciting a bunch of numbers and 
To me, it yeah. sounds very spooky. Yeah, it's very, very Cold War. I think, you know, they, they dramatized it in the television show Lost, I realized, even though I don't know if they ever, um, you know, made that actual connection in the plot of the show. But numbers being recited over the airwaves um, to communicate secret messages between agents in one country and their their handlers in another country. Very, And they, they're still out there on, on shortwave radio. We've we had an episode on with Thomas Witherspoon, who loves shortwave radio on Radio Survivor, where we talked about number stations. Yeah, they're yeah, they're, and and no one's really claimed ownership of them, right. which is interesting. So yeah, so we had all these elements in this piece, and it would be like a surround sound piece meant for five speakers, but instead of five speakers, I put five radios in the theater and an antenna on the roof, and had um, each kind of piece. So each channel could sound complete on its own if you tuned into it, but if you had all five channels, you get the full choir. So it was um, Germany, Austria, uh, Miami, Monticello, and Pirate Radio Boston all transmitted towards where the RCI towers were to complete that. And so you had um, you had radios tuning in each signal simultaneously to, to make the piece? Yeah. Oh. But the thing was that what was interesting is that was actually just a smaller part of this larger performance. Um, yeah, I should have started with that last. Sorry, I That's started okay. with that last. I should, yeah. No, I'm so yeah, getting my head around it. Well, Requiem for Radio actually started with um, a piece with a theremin, where I wanted to conjure the ghosts of the radio towers. So I took a theremin and ran control voltage to an Arduino to some code that triggered the contact mic recordings of the radio towers and videos of them. And the videos were those portraits. So instead of hearing the sound of the theremin, what you heard is I have 13 towers and 13 notes. So I played musically. So using the theremin, so my hands are in the air, I'm not touching anything. So it's this idea of using antennas to conjure the ghosts of antennas, this idea of harkening back to the medium and the spiritualist. So that's a solo performance for theremin where using my hands in the air, I play their sounds that the towers once made. And so that's, Requiem for Radio Pulse Decay. And then I built this installation, Requiem for Radio New Dead Zones, which is a scale model of that site, the 13 towers built out of plumbing to kind of reference the radio sync. And that those three, those 13 towers each had uh, four copper pads on them. And those are capacitance sensors. And each one had their own speaker. And so when you touched one of those, it triggered the contact mic recording. So if you touched Tower Q, you would hear the recording of Tower Q. And this installation mm. was, a, it was about 50 feet wide, 15 feet tall. And so when it was installed in public, a lot of people would touch it. And it sounded like someone leaning on a keyboard because you could touch it and make sounds and interact with it. But it was too chaotic. So I wanted this performance. So I had three performers, myself and two other women. We could play it. It was like a 50 foot wide keyboard. Um, wow. So, so this... So that became the set. So it was in a big black box theater and we had the installation, the, the scale model of the radio towers that we could touch and play notes. There was a moment with a solo on the theremin that triggered the, the sounds of the radios. There was a piece with a cello. There's all these different little movements within it, yeah. but that five channel radio broadcast was the opening and the closing. So we had an antenna on the roof of the theater and we had a bank of five radios, each tuned into a different channel. And in front of the audience, we tuned the radios and we tuned into them. And then you hear the choir. And then we go and we do all the other p movements. And then we come back and we finish the piece by tuning back into the closing. 
So we, in the theater, only used about 10 to 15 minutes of that composition, but you have to buy an hour of airtime on radio. So it was a full hour composition, but the audience only heard, or the audience in the theater only heard about 10 to 15 minutes. I mean, and I thought, well, maybe someone will stumble onto this on the airwaves, they'll wonder what it is, because I wasn't on any normal frequencies. But I didn't think, I didn't advertise it, so I didn't think there'd be that many people. And I made QSL cards more as a novelty, you know, like how there's little postcards for theater shows. Mm-hmm. And so I made the QSL cards more for promo. But the, we did this three nights. And before we were even done the first night, someone in the Netherlands posted a video to YouTube wondering what kind of pirate station this was. Because it was shortwave there, again, so it was going all across the globe. Oh, yeah. And then there was this thread on HF Underground, which monitors shortwave pirates. And people are like, hey, I'm, at, at first they think they're hearing the same thing on two different frequencies. And then oh. they, they, they start doing a close listening and comparing. They're like, wait. It's slightly different. It's synchronized and similar, but different. And then someone posts, I've decoded the Morse code. It's in Latin. Does anyone speak Latin? Oh my gosh, you really really gave them a a project. Yeah, so the next two nights, people around the world were getting out four and five radios to try and tune in. So unintentionally, yeah, I unintentionally reached this much wider international audience of unexpected listeners, which was kind of cool. It was, these people were, this was not something they expected to get into. And so that, so I got quite a few reception reports and then I sent out the, the QSL cards to people in um, Japan, uh, all over Europe, South America. Uh, yeah, all over. People wow. had tuned in and heard different things. That's so, so that So I was a nerd. A real nerd question. You know, we talked to Thomas Witherspoon about shortwave defined radios. So did people record, were there people that made a recording of the spectrum um, during that whole broadcast? Because he explained to us how you could make a spectrum recording and actually go back to it later, like you're flipping a dial and hear everything that was on the radio. Um, yeah, no one sent me spectrum recordings. Someone probably did, but a lot of people with uh, uh, software-defined radios did record um, what they were receiving. So with the reception reports, what I did get, I got people sending me audio recordings, sometimes of just one channel. Sometimes they recorded all five and then mixed them together. Oh. No, all four. No one got all five, but other people sent me like their mixes of all four. Uh, I got video recordings of their screen of the software defined radio i got photos of their radio setups one guy one of them some of them were very technical they just list facts like the frequency the type of radio the type of antenna what they heard very technical yeah others were very poetic one guy sent me a picture of a a, the beach of a lake and it just he described where he was sitting uh, I think it was Great Slave Lake. He's like, I'm sitting on a, a piece of driftwood with an antenna st- strung out to some scrubby bushes and the wind, he described the wind and the smell and his whole experience and sent me a picture of the beach where he listened. And then a picture of the planet Earth with a little red line drawn from Miami to Great Slave Lake where he was listening. So I could see. <laughs> so it was... And then other people were like, I don't know much about sound art, but here's what I heard. And then you get this like 1500 word description, which I gave to Lucas, oh uh, the composer. And he's like, you never get this kind of musical analysis, like from someone who doesn't have a background in contemporary music and sound art, giving you their full attention and, ri- and writing a, a description of it. It was it's, amazing. That's wonderful. And it's a great cross-section of the shortwave community 
you know, finding your work. And, and clearly you found out that that's a very active, engaged community. Yeah. And it's interesting because it wasn't my intended audience. And then all of a sudden I was like, and, and many of them said, oh, I, I feel like you made this just for me. And I was like, well, I really didn't, but I'm glad that you feel that way. That's great. That's yeah. So that kind of opened this whole other world to me. Amanda Don Christie, assistant professor of studio arts at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. You're telling us about this piece, Requiem, Requiem for Radio, right? That's what it's called? Yeah. And I just, yeah. it's so exciting to hear as an artist, like you had, I'm sure, a set of intentions. Like I, I was going to ask five minutes ago about like, well, did you think of this piece as, as installation, as theater, or as music? Because it sounds like all of them. And then to find out that that not only did you have an audience in the theater, but you had an audience around the world because it was broadcast on shortwave um, as part of the piece. Uh, I just, I'm wondering uh, if you could take us back again to, to, I guess, to your intentions as an artist to create the piece and then uh, filter that through what an amazing amount of feedback you got from across the globe about the piece. Yeah, so in terms of, I mean, the intention was always for it to have... um, be interdisciplinary so it, it's made and it's also kind of like because it's such a it's so elaborate for the theater piece uh, to set up that for instance uh, Pulse Decay the piece with a the theremin I've performed that quite a bit because it's just it's solo it's me and a theremin and some a few little boxes and that that works so I can do I can travel with a suitcase and do a 20-minute solo performance with that whereas the full Requiem for Radio full quiet flutter it's a black box theater. It's a full week to set up. It's it's intense. Um, but after the theater performance, uh, the installation, the scale model of the tower stays up when we did it. It stayed up for two weeks open to the public as a gallery installation. So it's like we do the performance for three nights and then for the next week or two, people can come and interact with it and play it themselves. So there's this element of and so Within it, then, of course, there's also music and um, there's also text and writing and um, and then, of course, the engagement with the international shortwave audience. Yeah, so, I just yeah. I really like this because you you were describing earlier in today's program of Radio Survivor, just the amount of time you spent alone contemplating these structures and the history that was behind them and how they were used to broadcast shortwave radio. And also you spent so much time on the landscape, on the earth alone, you know, under the sky with these towers, um, and then made these recordings. And to have all of that um, alone time transformed into a piece of art that other people can share without having to <laughs> camp out by the towers before they're torn down, right? But but still being able to have sort of the same experience that you had, um, it's very nice that you made this this kind of art. And, um, and we're excited about it on Radio Survivor because it... Um, it it it's so it put to use transmission arts um, in such a strong way, and that's why that's why I know Jennifer uh, was excited to talk to you today. Thanks. Yeah, and I and I think maybe now is a good time to talk about your most recent project. Uh, just a few weeks ago, you were in Alaska doing an intriguing transmission art piece that we mentioned earlier: ghosts in the airglow. Ghosts in the airglow. Ghosts in yeah. the airglow, so which you're not trying seems like to, the perfect descendant. Yeah. You're not of worried about about uh, about too much woo in your in your titles anymore. I wasn't, but I, I maybe I should be now. But yeah, <laughs> I'm still on the fence with that. Um, 
Ghosts in the Airglow resulted from, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, so with the Requiem for Radio, uh, I was surprised all of a sudden with the shortwave community. Um, I made all these contacts and they invited me to be a keynote speaker at the um, shortwave listening festival in Pennsylvania. So I went there. So it's like, it's one of these things where one thing leads to the other, leads to the other in right. my art practice. Yeah, so I try to just remain open and go where things take me. And so it took me there. And little did I realize that there is a strong connection between the shortwave and the hacking community. So there were some hackers there, not in the negative sense, but like the positive sense of um, hacking. And like, um, yeah, I mean, the original sense of the, the term hacker, I used it, and I like was always very positive. So it's a shame that there's that darker side. Anyway, so I met yeah, these pe really people who people who use their skills at computers to make uh, to make the Internet dance, to do fun things, uh, to connect people and, and to use these tools to sort of gain new new powers and make things. It's really why the Internet exists at all is, is people were hacking when when yeah. for fun. And now. Yeah. Now there's all these other to make tools a, to make a radio out of a sink. Right. Exactly. Hacking. Yeah, it, so I've so I've discovered. Yeah, because hacking is not just on the computer, right? It's there's biohacking. There's like you know mechanical, computer, social engineering, all these various manifestations of it. Um, it's like using your skills to make things work and make them work better, and more efficient, and and so anyway, I met these really amazing people at the shortwave festival who. Um, were involved in the hacking community. And so through that, I was invited to teach a workshop and perform at the Circle of Hope this summer in New York. And the Circle of Hope is hackers on planet Earth. And so when I was there, and I was like, I'm not a hacker. And they're like, you made a radio out of a sink. Of course you are. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, when I was at the Circle of Hope, um, there was a presentation by Dr. Chris Fallen, who is the chief scientist at a place called HARP in Alaska, the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program. And I was just amazed at this site. It's 180 radio transmitters, uh, antennas, uh, on a matrix, uh, spread out in a matrix on 33 acres of land. And they transmit high frequency radio waves straight up uh, to activate the ionosphere to study how different natural ionospheric conditions affect radio communications with satellites. And so much of communication relies on the ionosphere. Whether you're talking about surveillance with the military or just standard, you know, uh, cell phone service, um, GPS, all these things uh, are affected by the ionosphere. And so what they do is they recreate natural conditions um, in order to study them under controlled circumstances. And uh, one of the things they do is they generate airglow. And airglow is artificial aurora, or they try to. It's very difficult. It often doesn't work. Um, they need just the right conditions to activate a very small portion of the ionosphere, very, very small portion of the ionosphere, to create this artificial glowing. It's a little glowing spot. You can't see with the human eye. You need telescopes. It's very, like, they, they can't create the same effects on the ionosphere that the sun does. Like, it's just very minimal what they're doing, but they have very precise scientific instruments on the ground to monitor it. Um, so he's talking about that, and in his presentation, he, uh, and I'm just thinking, wow, this is amazing. And he talks about the fact that there's a lot of conspiracy theories about the site. A lot of people believe that 
harp causes hurricanes, earthquakes, forest fires, which is ironic because if it's cloudy, it ruins their experiments. Like they can't run if it's cloudy or if it's too cold. Like their experiments depend on the weather. So it's a little bit absurd when people think that they're controlling the weather. Yeah, it's this, Not is, to say... this is one of those conspiracy theories that um, I became familiar with in the 90s prior to the internet existing. Um, I, you know, someone, someone that I went to college with had a book about harp. And so the first time I ever heard about the project, it was in this um, sort of... Uh, the, the U.S. military is trying to control the weather uh, for nefarious ends, uh, which yeah. which is which is a, a message that probably a lot of people have received about the about the the facility uh, prior to um, you know the more the more fact based Wikipedia article version of what's yeah. going on there. Yeah, and the thing is that I mean, no doubt there are definitely places around the world doing weather weapon research. But HARP is not one of them. So it's ironic that all of the energy, everyone, all the theories are directed towards HARP. When you're like, you know, the fact that you're looking at HARP means you're probably not looking at the right place. You know, that's 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 one theory about conspiracy theories is that they're out there to misdirect away from the real conspiracies. You know, you have a you have a story that's very compelling that misdirects you from the story that's. that's right in front of your face. But anyway, this is not an episode about conspiracy yeah. theories, despite the fact that Radio Survivor yeah. has uh, dug into the work. Um, we've talked to, with Matthew Lazar in the past, a great episode about um, how community radio used to be one of the, um, you know, one of the places where conspiracy theories would blossom. Uh, we, there's a lot of shows in the past in the history of community radio that were that played an instrumental role in developing some... Uh, some conspiracies prior to the internet. It's all on the internet now. But yeah, um, tell us more about the project that you that you started working on, Amanda Don Christie, um, with with transmission yeah. arts at the Harp facility. So the um, so yeah, so Chris did this presentation about what Harp does and what it's used for, and and he he talked about the that there were these you know conspiracy theories about weather control so that it controls the weather and then also that people believe that it's responsible for gulf war syndrome uh chronic fatigue headaches etc and uh so he's he's basically talking about those and he talks about that book that you mentioned uh angels don't play this harp and and part of the goals basically that that site was managed by the united united states air force uh and darpa and the University of Alaska Fairbanks until 2014 and then they pulled out and it was kind of mothballed for two years and then the University of Alaska took it over uh, in 2016 and so since then they're really working on being more transparent because part of the reason these conspiracy theories come up is uh, when people don't know what's happening there's there is a natural impulse to create a narrative to try and understand it. So the University of Alaska is trying to be much more transparent. So Chris is doing these talks and he brings up the conspiracy theories and then addresses each one about what HARP actually does, why it's not capable of doing those things. And and in the midst of that, he's, he, he's also an amateur radio operator and, and he says, and he's a physicist, but he also has his ham license. And he says, well, I realize, you know, this is essentially a giant radio transmitter. So instead of, because normally they don't, transmit content like audio or anything mm-hmm. but he did he did some experiment and in the past some people have transmitted a few songs like uh, you know bits of music um so he did uh he played at the conference uh, an excerpt of a luxembourg experiment he did which is a phenomenon called cross modulation which hasn't been studied much they discovered it in 1934 
hasn't been studied too much. It's normally radio waves ricochet, they bounce off the ionosphere. The Luxembourg effect is when you penetrate into the ionosphere, but you don't go out the other side into outer space. You mix together and then come back down. So you have two frequencies go up. They mix in the ionosphere and they come down on the same frequency. Oh, wow. So they're coming wow. from different antennas. Is that the idea or are they? Yeah. Well, yeah. So different. So you could transmit up on 3.8 or 2.8 megahertz and 3.2 megahertz. And, it, and then on the ground, if your radio is tuned to 2.8, you'll hear both sounds. One will be louder than the other, mm -hmm. but they're going to come down together. And so, the Luxembourg yeah, so effect. He, yeah, or cross modulation. Cross modulation. So Chris had done this with uh, DTMF tones, so like dial tones on a phone, and played these. And then he also transmitted an SSTV image, uh, slow scan television, where you take an image, convert it to audio. It sounds like a fax machine. Mm -hmm. And then when someone receives it, software of the computer decodes it to an image. And it's just like 90s internet when you watch an image appear line by line. So yeah, so Chris had transmitted some SSTV images just to see because one of the things they haven't tested with HARP is propagation. How far can people receive the signals? Because it's not meant to be a radio transmitter. It's using radio waves to study the ionosphere. But no one's really done a lot of scientific studies. So what Chris did is he embedded into his own airglow experiments some audio and some image just out of curiosity to see. And he monitored where people received stuff. And he sent a, a, an image of the university logo, a QR code to a Bitcoin account with enough money for a cup of coffee. Uh, no one got the image clear enough to claim the money for the coffee. And Jeez. <laughs> what a that's a wonderful we you know this comes up a lot in transmission arts. I know uh, I don't know if that sparks anything for you, Jennifer Waits, but like we've heard people put clues into the into the airwaves before to to create um, you know, radio scavenger hunts. So that's this is a new oh, one. Yeah. The yeah, the definitely. idea of putting a QR code for a cup of yeah. coffee's worth of Bitcoin into the into the airwaves. And then he also sent up a cat picture. Sure. It was his cat, yeah. So I thought, you know, this is really cool. This is this is interesting. Um, but I, I just had the urge to do something maybe a bit more poetic than a, a cat picture. Um, and, and the cat picture was great, but I wanted to do something more. And in his talk, he's like, oh, yeah, if anyone wants to transmit from anything from Harp, just let me know. It's only $5,000 an hour. Ha, ha, ha. You know, like as if no one, you know, because no one's going to pay that much. But I'm pretty good at writing grant applications. And I felt, you know, I've got 10 years of, uh, I was like, I have 10 years of transmission art behind me. I just finished this massive international piece. Why not? So I approached him afterwards and I said, hey, uh, I, I want to do this. I'm an artist and I want to buy time. And he was, I think he thought I was maybe a bit nutty. I don't think he knew what to make of me. And a couple weeks later, I get a, an email saying, oh, I looked at your website. I've seen your work. Yeah, yeah, we could do something. So we started talking and I applied for funding and I got the funding. And so then I was like, all right, let's do this. Let's see what can I do with HARP that I can't do with any other radio transmitter. So I worked yeah. on learning what can this site do and learning a bit about the history of it and a bit about uh, the public perception of it, the conspiracy theories. And I wanted to make something where the content really related to the actual site itself mm. and also used the capabilities of the site. Yeah. So what so, did you what did you make? What did I make? So uh, the piece is called Ghosts in the Air Glow. It's in 10 movements. Um, and the 10 movements are in eight experiments because movements one, two and three are the same experiment. 
It begins with a, like a prelude, so I trans, uh, an airglow experiment uh, where I transmit one frequency straight up on magnetic zenith. I do, a, there's some a haunting music in the background, and the haunting music is a, a duet of pulse decay, so that theremin piece and saxophone with my friend Genevieve uh, that's time stretched out. So you have this haunting music in the background and my voice doing a territorial acknowledgement of the indigenous communities that lived on the land first mm. and talking a bit about the um, the concept of mind and matter and air glow and the aurora and energy, um, referencing political territories and boundaries in the way that radio returns to earth um, regardless of political territories and boundaries and nation states. Right, which harkens back to earlier in our conversation today on Radio Survivor where shortwave was used to to break boundaries in the, during the Cold War and broadcast messages um, into repressive governments, so you know people could hear yeah. anything. And Amanda, yeah. just just to clarify, you're you're doing this as a live broadcast. Uh, no, so the all of all the files had to be prepared in advance because okay. it's a very complex instrument to operate. So everything was pre-recorded, but there was a lot of work to get things. And then in in real time, what was happening was like there were some changing frequencies each day, but no, everything was extremely intensely pre-planned and pre-prepared. Um, yeah, and there was some Morse code poetry, so I wrote some poetry in Morse code. Nice. Uh, yeah, and that talked a bit about uh, the ghost. And the ghost, I was connecting with the concept of stochastic ghost resonances, which is uh, another term for missing fundamentals. So my friend Genevieve, who I've collaborated with on Requiem for Radio and a few other things, she's doing her doctorate in saxophone and focusing on missing fundamentals, which is when you hear two uh, notes a certain intervals apart at the upper edge of human hearing, you hear a third note, the undertone, or the um, if you hear the two overtones, you'll hear the fundamental. Right. And some some scientists say it's generated generated in the brain cognitively, whereas others say it's generated by resonances in the cochlea. So that's Inside what she's looking ear. at. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. And so either in your ear or in your brain, depending on who you ask. Yeah, and it's this is a form of uh, harmony that you that you can hear. Yeah. And, and, yeah, sax- yeah. Saxophone is a particularly interesting instrument because. Um, I don't think a lot of people think of it that way, but its greatest players uh, will play with those notes. They'll they'll use yeah. their reed to get more than one note out of it, even though uh, most people don't think about saxophones as being a chord, an instrument that can play yeah. chords. Yeah, so she could get two notes out of it, but this is not about the notes coming out of the saxophone. This is about the notes being generated inside the listener's body. Yeah. So it's like she can she plays like two notes that are very precise intervals apart from each other and they're the harmonies. So you're not and then inside your head is generated the actual fundamental. The so third, the note the chord. The, yeah, so but the main one, not you're not generating the harmony, you're generating the actual fundamental. So if you have those two harmonics played very high pitched at the edge of human hearing, then inside the head it generates the um, I say inside the head because some people say the brain some say the ear so I I won't pass judgment because that's not my area of expertise how amazing and and, then that's uh, also known as a ghost note is that true so it's called it's uh, there's it's called one one of three things missing fundamental or or a phantom frequency so you get the word phantom in there phantom frequency so or a stochastic ghost resonance so I just loved those names. So the Morse code poetry in, in the prelude is all about um, uh, 
this idea of the ghost is the distance between the difference between what you think and what you say. It's the difference between the photograph of your loved one and the, the memory of your loved one and the photograph you took of them when you were young. And then I talk in the in the Morse code poetry about the missing fundamental. And I say, I'm going to send you a phantom frequency. Uh, if you hear both overtones, you your uh, the missing fundamental will be generated inside your head. This is your ghost frequency. This is your ghost. I'm going to send you two frequencies. I'm going to send you two frequencies on two frequencies. So it's like I'm giving them a heads up. I'm about to do this. And so then the next movement is on two different frequencies. And it's I rec Genevieve came over and recorded some saxophone. One frequency is just a, a slow drone, like a single note. And the other one, she's improvising a melody that goes in and out of the missing fundamental area. So it was a Luxembourg experiment. So the idea was, if, you, if the cross-modulation and Luxembourg effect was present, when you tuned in, your radio would play the two notes, and the third one would be generated in your head, if it worked. Yeah, that's such an interesting way that you, that you link those two... Uh those two things together uh, with what's happening, you know, a, with the saxophone playing notes and then with what's happening at the harp site. It's yeah, pretty it's, brilliant. It's very evocative to me of just the whole idea of, of radio, but any form of communication at all, any artwork where any, any ideas get, get written down or transmitted over the airwaves, even a podcast where, you know, the ideas are in our heads and we're communicating them into microphones, but when they hit the ears of the listeners and go into their minds, either into their ears or into their heads, it's a it's a third note. That what you know, yeah. whatever our audience makes of all of this work, is really is really the work itself. At least for each individual that hears it, it's very it's a very beautiful idea. Oh, thanks. Well, and then yeah, so the next movement was also a cross modulation one, and it was recordings of Arctic wolves. And I pitch shifted the wolves howling into wolf fifths, which is a dissonant fifth. <laughs> uh, but I thought it was a nice pun. And so that one's called Wolves Chasing the Ghost. And the idea is what if cross modulation doesn't work? What if you don't hear the ghost note? And you're like, oh, it's because the wolves ate the ghost. So this was just a playful idea in my head that there were a bunch of Arctic wolves that chased down the ghost and ate it. Oh, yeah. um, and so that piece starts with just wolves howling normally. And then all of a sudden, when I, I kind of auto-tuned them, and they start to, oh my gosh, they sound like Cher. It's kind of funny. It makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so then they start to sing in this kind of um, dissonant way, and then they go back to sounding normal. Uh, then the next movement was also cross-modulation, and that was SSTV images. So I sent 10 minutes of SSTV. I sent a series of video test patterns. Right, and that, that again, SSTV is this uh, technology where one, one pixel at a time can be broadcast uh, audio in audio so that it can be received and then decoded back into an image, like a, like a fax yeah. machine over the, over the airwaves. Yeah, it sounds like a fax machine. It takes uh, two minutes per image. And uh, yeah, so the, there were video test patterns that were modified and inspired by uh, one of the 18th, uh, 19th century spiritualists, Hilma A.F. Klimt, mm. who was a medium. So she had these paintings. So I um, hired a grad student here to kind of develop these. So Ryan Clayton, one of my grad students, 
um, designed these video test patterns inspired by her paintings. Huh. They, I didn't, we didn't realize, uh, you know, because we're so focused on that. So, you know, sometimes you're so close to something that you don't step back and realize like, oh, it also looks like the symbol for the Illuminati with a triangle and a circle on the top. You might as well <laughs> Which, give your audience more to, to chew on. Yeah, if you're going to exactly. give them one bone, why not give them a whole skeleton to make up their own myth around your work? Exactly, wow. because then the other image was MRI scans of my brain, because I thought, well, if people think harp causes mind control, let's reference that. And so a couple of years ago, I had submitted myself for, for, to a clinical trial for brain scans, uh, just so that I could get the data. So I have all these brain scans of my brain, so I transmit these MRIs of my brain and some of them, you know, they look almost alien because they're slices and when they're closer to the ear or the side, the proportion of the head and the neck looks kind of alien. And so you have the brain and mind control. And I was thinking, you know, this is a nice playful way. I'm referencing the conspiracy theories, but I'm being transparent and upfront. You're front. playing with fire, Amanda Dawn Christie. I definitely was, yes, yes. Um, yeah, uh, there were. Yeah, I'll talk about that in just a bit. But yeah, so that was that movement. And then I went into a technical test of splitting the harp array into two sections and rotated the beams counter clock, uh, counter rotating. So they're each rotating in different directions because you can control the direction like that's one of the things with harp. It's it's you can really control it. So one of them I'm counting to 100 and the other one I'm reciting the NATO phonetic alphabet. So I'm going through Alpha, Bravo, Charlie to reference kind of the military history as well. But it was just more a technical test. Uh, the first bit evocative of number stations again. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I had some people who got different bits of, of the recordings and online they're saying, oh, yeah, I haven't decoded it yet, but I think it's 64 bit encryption. And I'm like, oh, boy, dude, I'm so just, fun. It reminds me. I was like, I'm, it re- I'm just counting to 100. That's so funny. It, Jennifer, it reminds me of another broadcast you and I did long ago where we were uh, enjoying the, the, the public relations project surrounding the, the Amazon television show that used used the idea the mysteries generated by radio as a as a backdrop oh yeah yeah as, the man in the high castle yeah as, as and 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 you know this public relations firm created an entire project that sort of fed off this energy where when you hear things coming over a broadcast especially a pirate broadcast or or a non-traditional broadcast it really just does spark the imagination it does make a person in the dark think about ghosts when they're hearing these voices in their, you know, so close to their, the inside of their head. Yeah, yeah. So then the the piece takes a bit of a different right. Well, like so, it starts off in that number station feel with the, um, with the phonetic alphabet, and then I tell a story spelled out in the phonetic alphabet. Like I start spelling words. So that one, I guess, is kind of encoded just in the if you copy the letters like Mike, Yankee, Golf. Romeo, Alpha, you spell it out, it's a short story about my grandfather. And then, yeah, but this comes back to what you were saying about conspiracy theories that hide conspiracy theories. So, or the next movement, I I split the beam and I transmit half of it towards Russia. I transmit SSTV images of my grandfather towards Russia. (laughs) And I broadcast and I transmit towards Washington, D.C., my voice reading my grandmother's memoir. And so what I'm reading about is this thing called the, mem- the mystery box. 
And so the photos going towards Russia are of my grandfather in 1962 with this big metal box with two cameras on it and a parachute and military personnel. And the story that I'm reading towards Washington is my grandmother's memoir from 1962 when my my grandfather found this thing in the logging camp behind their house. So seven miles in the woods, there was this big metal box that looked like a refrigerator um, with cameras and radio equipment, parachute and antenna. And they called... Yeah, yeah, totally. And so my family never knew what this thing was. Like, so they... He called the RCMP and the Air Force and the Army to come get it. No one wanted it. So he and a friend went in. They brought out, like, all the radio equipment was frozen. And he really wanted to know what it was. So he actually plowed a road out to it with his tractor. And because it was heavy. He, um, it was 400 pounds. Wow. It was 400 pounds. It fell right? from so, the sky mysteriously. <laughs> yeah. So he brings it back to the house. And then the locals all start talking. And this is where I love part of what I was interested in was that relationship between you know, military research and civilians and the way we try to create narratives about it. So there's, um, so my grandmother wrote down what people said. So one person said, you know, is it going to blow us up? We can't open it. Maybe it's a bomb. Someone said, I saw an airplane fly over there this spring. I think they dropped something. A little girl asked, was it full of animals? Like, I just love that one. (laughs) Is it full of animals? Was was (laughs) there a dead person? Yeah, was there a dead person inside of it? Did it come from Russia? Because again, this is 1962. Um, So then the press comes, and then the military comes to take it away. And my grandfather was working, and my grandmother sends them away. Like this is like six... an episode of the X Files. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, and it was it was like my grade six science project when I was a kid because we've got all these eight by ten photos of this thing. Wow. And my so what happened was the this army truck backs up, and six men in uniform get out. Uh, to load it up and my grandmother says who gave you permission to take this and and they said orders came from Fredericton and she says who owns it and they're like we don't know she's like well if you don't own it you can't have it without my husband's permission and she like argued with them and they left and then they came back when my grandfather was home and they prom they they took it on the condition that my grandparents would be there when they opened it and they would tell them what it was but they never heard from them again that was it it was gone and so they were told it was uh, a weather balloon. It was just a weather balloon. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So what's interesting is that, so unfortunately, both my grandparents died before finding out the truth. But it was one of these things in my family that, like, you know, there's a whole scrapbook dedicated to it, all the newspaper articles. Um, and actually, like, no one opened it because they were afraid that it would blow up or something. But my grandmother actually opened it when my grandfather wasn't around. She opened it to look inside, which I just love. Pandora's box. Um, Totally. So the um, so what what it was. So two years ago, uh, it was, we figured out what it, we found out what it was. It was declassified. It was a CIA project called Project Genetrix, which was a stratospheric balloons with cameras sent over Russia to photograph looking for nuclear facilities. And this one drifted off course and crashed in New Brunswick, Canada. And the thing is that. When you go to the conspiracy theories is that when they, if you read up, there's a really cool site called Stratopedia, which is the history of scientific ballooning. And so the Stratopedia article talks about how when they launched Project Genetrix as a cover, they simultaneously launched a massive weather balloon program so that if one of these crashed, they could say it was a weather balloon. 
But what they didn't anticipate was all the UFO sightings. So people who think they've seen aliens and UFOs, but they're weather balloons. Right. They're just weather balloons. And then, but and, the weather and, weather balloons are actually a cover for surveillance cameras. And this is this is yeah. something you know. I'm I love I I, I love reading about uh, conspiracy theories and and doing doing my own research and my own storytelling. And one of the things that I that I've come across often is that the secrecy around the Cold War and the 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 terrifying notion of the world ending atomic bomb like superpower struggle like that that warps a lot of imaginations and that was real these bombs were real mm -hmm. the programs in each country were real and then the secrecy around spying on each other's nuclear bomb program generated a whole lot of mystery where the vacuum gets filled with all sorts of new fairy folk all sorts of yeah. new mythical beings and ideas and superpowers and that that fear down at the base of the story that there's these bombs that can kill us all uh really really drives the imagination completely bonkers yeah and and that's actually kind of is how then i went i ended the piece after transmitting those images the final movement is some more poetry and morse code referencing kind of uh, the beginning and the end of the universe. I combined that word into beginning, about the beginning <laughs> of the universe. Uh, because one of the things that I like about static on both television and radio noise is that 1% of that is residual radiation from the Big Bang. Yeah. So when you're trying to filter out the noise, you're actually unintentionally a witness to the beginning of the universe, right? Because that's in the microwaves. And so... Um, the Morse code poetry at the end talks about how the beginning of the universe left echoes in the microwaves and to be careful when you filter out the noise because some of that noise might be signal. And then I kind of do a little twist on that T.S. Eliot poem, um, you know, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. So in radio, there's this thing called whisper networks, WSPR, which for weak signal propagation report but it's pronounced whisper. So the last lines of the Morse code poetry are, um, will it end with a bang or a whisper, a whimper or a whisper? Wow. And so it's kind of questioning, how is everything going to end? You know, like the end of the, like, so we've got the beginning. Is it going to end with, uh, you know, are we going to destroy ourselves either with bombs and military stuff or with climate change or will it simply be a natural ending with a star exploding are we just going to live out so kind of so i tried to kind of bring it out to the whole the beginning and the end of the universe we don't really know um but it will likely inhabit microwaves what however it ends there will be weak signals propagating in microwaves no matter however we end that's how it's all going to end up is in the microwaves such a profound yeah. piece i'm I'm just amazed at how you've been able to weave together these stories from your own life into the project as well. It's uh, it's so evocative, and, and I can't wait to listen to more of the audio because you have it archived, so we can, we can tune in and enjoy it. Yeah, and in the next few weeks, I'll put up the recordings from the... Um uh, reception reports. I got reception reports from all around the world. And um, there's one guy in the Mojave Desert who really got all 10 movements super, even better than we did. So right now on my website, I've got our recordings from Anchorage. We set up receivers in Anchorage. Um, but over the next few weeks, I'm going to be uploading. I had people sending me, because I'm going to do QSL cards for this too. So I had people receiving images and audio in Japan, 
Korea, uh, no, Japan, Colombia, Chile, Argentina, Mexico, lots in New Mexico. Uh, so lots of great reception reports. And then the yeah, and then the only other thing that I didn't, I, you kind of hinted at it earlier, was the, the conspiracy theories and what people um, uh, bring to it. Yeah, why, uh, why don't you talk a little bit, yeah, and, and I know you're getting close on time as well. Yeah. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about... One of the unforeseen things with yeah, the, the results. Yeah, un unfortunate unforeseen things that happened. Yeah, so in dealing with all this content, like I was trying to be transparent and make work that really addressed and entered into dialogue with the public perception of the site. And, you know, acknowledging that these conspiracy theories exist, but make reference to them. So one of the, uh, so basically because I was uh, trying to work with being transparent and addressing and entering into dialogue with the conspiracy theories around HARP, acknowledging that those exist and trying to make artwork about them in order to open up discussion and dialogue, um, what I didn't foresee was that there, there wound up being a conspiracy theory about me and I didn't expect it to be so big and so bizarre. Like, I, it would be one thing if the thing about me was that I was using HARP for weather weapons or mind control, because those are already out there. But two days before I arrived on the site, there was a 20-minute video, and it's a guy's screen capture of and him doing Google searches. It's on YouTube. And, yeah, it's on YouTube, and it's, it's uh, there were, within two days, there were 65,000 views and 1,500 comments. And the, the video is that uh, the conspiracy theory is that I was using heart for a satanic ritual to con conjure demons from another dimension yeah. that would destroy humanity. And I was like, what? Where did that come from? You put it, and you put it all into the text and they had to read the subtext. Amanda, Don yeah, uh, except none of it was in the none of it. Like this is before I even did the transmissions. Uh, and so it was really. I think it really made it evident how people, um, it, like, they, they weren't aware of the Google algorithms that feed you things in your searches. Like, in his video, he, he at one point, he does a Google search for something. Like, look at this. Isn't this a coincidence that all these things come up when I search on this? And you're like, but Right, because dude, he's, this is somebody that's... who spends the, a vast amount of their of their productive time on the internet searching different conspiracy theory rabbit holes. I've, I've actually seen yeah. these YouTube videos before, not in the last couple of years, but um, it's an existing genre. Uh, there's probably a handful of known uh, creators in the genre where they, they click around on a map and talk about the things that they're seeing and why this is um, government weather control that's being weaponized against the different peoples of the planet earth it, yeah. it brings up a lot of uh interesting issues that are on the table these days about um the power of youtube and whether or not they have a responsibility um to uh promote facts more than conspiracies yeah. um because exactly because the creators of these videos are um they're extremely creative people and it's really a shame that they're not uh working more in the kinds of uh, realms of art <laughs> that that yeah. that that you practice where where poetry is allowed where where coming up with new ideas and connecting them is a part of a process but in the end you're telling folk stories you're telling myths you're not inspiring people um to real world violence yeah yeah and that's the thing is that and that's the sad part is that there is a connection with violence and you can't just say oh that's kind of kooky because 
they um for instance like this video about me like they uh uh it's it's the guy who makes these videos is also making flat earth videos and saying that like you know the earth is flat there's no outer space nasa's lying and you're like okay but you can't just brush it off because there are very real threats. Right. Um, Wait, this is interesting. When this video so came out, the same uh, person uh, is making videos about the ionosphere, which cannot exist without a round globe and the flat Earth. Are we? Yeah. Are we calling? Well, but he's not. He's not saying anything about the ionosphere. Okay. I don't even know if he mentions the ionosphere. <laughs> I see. But um, the thing is that it's the uh, after this video came out, um, the the project manager at HARP, who's, you know, formerly with the Air Force, she took me aside and said, you know, you have to be aware that you're a target now. And that, you know, in 2016, two guys drove up to HARP in a car full of automatic weapons to kill everyone because they just said God told them to and it was an evil thing. And uh, there were, um, she played me the voicemails that they receive. Anytime there's a hurricane or an earthquake, they get really threatening voicemails, like very... Um, explicit, like people who know the names of the people who work there, who say they're going to come to their house, they list all the weapons they have, they list graphically what they're going to do to them. And it's so violent and horrific and terrifying. And you're like, wow, okay, so we have a very real problem here. The people who believe the earth is flat are following these, uh, you know, doing these Google searches and YouTube searches, not aware that the algorithm is just feeding confirmation bias. And then they're buying into this and then they're channeling aggression at actual individual humans who are working, doing really honest, interesting, valuable scientific research are becoming targets. And I think that that is simultaneously heartbreaking and terrifying. And I think it's a very real problem that needs to be addressed somehow, and I'm not sure how. So on one hand, I'm glad that my artwork engaged with it and addressed it, but now I'm also aware that in so doing, I kind of put myself out there as another target for that. Yeah, I mean, and uh, unfortunately, because of the nature of your artwork, where you're playing with myths and mysteries and the powerful stories and the secrets, all all of these um, beautiful ideas that go into fiction and create really powerful fiction um, when they're dropped into the minds of people who want to explain why they're in pain or why they're scared or why they don't have freedom, you end up with some really um, scary ideas that then are used <laughs> in the world. Yeah, and- in reality, they're not, it's not fiction anymore for them. And I'm glad that you're, you're helping to demystify what's going on at HARP as well and hopefully educate people about that so that maybe some of these questions and, and fears are, are allayed a bit by, by you being there and talking about what's actually going on. Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping to do. And then also because this was so much about the conspiracy theories that I have uh, funding for another two of these two experiments. So Ghost in the Airglow has another two chapters And those are going to be more about the actual ionospheric science. And so those are going to be artistic responses entering into dialogue with the scientists. So hopefully that will actually help to take the project further to really demystify what's being done there. Uh, Because really, it's a facility that should be celebrated as a, 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 a really sophisticated scientific instrument for really valuable research. So Amanda, I think our time is up probably and... I just wanted to thank you, Amanda Don Christie, for talking about your work in transmission art and your passion for radio. I'm 
just blown away by all of your projects and, and can't wait to hear more as you develop the next phase of, of this project as well. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you both. Well, that wraps it up for this podcast edition of the episode of Radio Survivor. This is episode number 190. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us by email, uh, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We'd also love it if you subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, It's free. It's always free. We also have a Patreon uh, where we drop some uh, select premium content, which is basically us talking to our guests on a much more uh, narrow bandwidth. Really, you know, for the radio program, generally speaking, we know that there's all sorts of people in the audience. Uh, but when we when we do specific podcast uh, or uh, premium, or I should say, Patreon-only content, which is also known as premium content when you pay for it, um, we're talking much more specifically about uh, topics that, that relate to you know, uh, our internet audience. We think people who are, what do we call them? Radio anoraks is the word that comes up. Uh, that's the word that they used in Ireland and in the UK for, uh, for radio geeks, for internet people. And so you can check all that out at patreon.com slash radio survivor. We're also working on trying to tell the story of indie media. Um, what is it? 20, it's 20 years ago, uh, roughly speaking, the indie media movement really hit a groundswell, hit a peak moment, uh, really broke out into the world because of the 1999 uh, protests in Seattle, the battle for Seattle and the work that was being done to uh, broadcast information and news from the ground, uh, you know, uh, trying to do an uh, circumvent the mainstream media and the kind of choke points that activists were seeing at those moments uh, prior to all of these uh, streaming feeds that we're now uh, given access to by certain large uh, social media corporations, which could uh, cut off those feeds at any time. Um, The indie media movement is a story that then also leads us into uh, the low power FM movement. We're heard this podcast uh, version is not being heard on the radio at the moment, but the radio version of this podcast is heard around the country on stations that are mostly low-power FM stations, and those low-power FM stations, which were built either five years ago or about 15 years ago, I think 13 years ago, uh, came about because of the activism in the 90s around around the indie media movement and the low-power FM movement and some pirate radio uh, uh, radicals in there as well, some nonviolent activists who took the airwaves without permission from the FCC uh, to prove that there was a um, a need, that there was a demonstrable need that communities uh, could use these tiny radio stations and it wasn't going to uh, cause any trouble for the big ones. Uh, and all of that, that whole story is what we want to tell and we need your help. Go uh, check out, learn more about the project and what we're trying to accomplish by going to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Well, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you again to Amanda Don Christie for the interview today. A really, oh, please do go on to the website radiosurvivor.com and click away to find out more about Amanda Don Christie's uh, radio work. Uh, we didn't get to hear any of it mixed in like I'd like to do, but it's all there uh, to be listened to on its own time, on its own terms. You don't need me to edit it in for you. Click away and and listen to the sounds that Amanda Don Christie was describing on today's episode. My thanks again 
to Amanda John Christie for being the guest today. My thanks to Paul Reismandel and to Jennifer Waits who produced this episode and to Matthew Lassar who will be back, I'm sure, maybe during the summer vacation when he's not so busy teaching. Matthew Lassar will be back with us. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll see you again next week. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening.